Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Instead, you create virtual credit card numbers which are linked to your bank account that you can use anywhere. There are a lot of benefits. For instance, it's really the best way to pay for subscription services because it puts the power back in your hands. Use a different virtual card for every subscription and never beg anyone to cancel your payments again when you can simply delete or deactivate the card they have on file. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com slash best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the likes of Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson as a window into the world of their followers and as an inoculation against thinking they're people worth taking seriously just because they make sense about one-third of the time. Clips today come from Citations Needed, Revolutionary Left Radio, The Benjamin Dixon Show, The Majority Report, and Chapo Trap House. You wrote, a, I would say, it was probably one of the more popular pieces um, connecting the dots between U.S. imperialism and U.S. military aggression, and it's dovetailing with the new atheist movement, uh, both ideologically and propaganda-wise and, and kind of mass media culture. And you traced its origins and its popularity, not immediately after 9-11, but you argue that it could not have happened without 9-11. Yeah. And I have a tendency to agree, and I guess... How do you view that the perfect storm of events that happened that provided the place for new atheism to foster as a kind of hipster, liberal, nominally liberal way of backing U.S. foreign policy without selling oneself as some right wing Bush lover? Okay, well, I think it uh, it's somewhat useful to think about at least the hardcore and the politicized part of the new atheist movement as kind of the liberal wing of imperialism, um, which is to say... Um, I guess a more traditional conservative imperialism draws on a different set of idioms to justify pretty similar policies. Um, I think liberal imperialism tends to be more cerebral and um, at least on the face of it, like less overtly violent, uh, maybe rhetorically and uh, less honest with itself overall about what its own aims and methods are. Um, It tends to prefer a kind of more rationalist framework. Um, and I mean, as for the specific context in which it emerged, um, I really think you can actually pinpoint a very particular moment. And I don't want to generalize too much, but I think that moment in a big way was the Bush administration's pivot on Iraq. Mm-hmm. So after you know mobilizing support for the Iraq war, um, kind of using these national security pretexts like Uh, inferring softly that Saddam Hussein was involved in or directly responsible for 9-11 or that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Um, By 2004, things were going really badly and they needed a new narrative. Um, And that's where uh, the more uh, liberal stuff about kind of spreading democracy and nation building, Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of Jeffersonian internationalism, that's where that stuff came in. But, of course, that didn't work either because the insurgency got going and things were going very badly. The U.S.-U.K. Uh, occupation didn't have widespread public support. And I think it was Richard Seymour uh, who wrote the great uh, unhitched book, the great uh, deconstruction of Christopher Hitchens, who pointed out that um, you know Hitchens intervened very strongly in this context. This is where he kind of made his big 
pivot. Mm. So they needed to have an explanation for why none of the narratives about the war, which, you know, the New York Times and everyone else assured us, you know, certain things were going to happen. And then when they didn't, they needed to have an explanation. And so all of a sudden there was this 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 boogeyman called religion that could be mobilized to explain what was going wrong. And, you know, I think the the benefit of this discourse, and I guess we'll get into this a little later, but um, it, it, like it has a much wider audience than I think the uh, the kind of rhetoric that was coming out of the Bush administration at the time. And I like I think it should be said before we get too far into new atheism that, um, you know, not all new atheist discourse is concerned with these issues. And actually, that's a reason for its success, too. Much of it is just kind of it posits itself anyway as just a dispassionate and rationalist critique of religion, all religion as such. And even though I find a lot of it quite facile, although I suppose my teenage self would disagree on that, um, I think some of it does take place in kind of good faith, uh, which is to say a lot of the people who are attracted to it are completely unaware of its implications when it comes to geopolitics or the very right-wing inclinations of a lot of its leading Figures. Yeah, I, I find that true on my end too. People don't really think through the the geopolitical or imperialist implications of some of the stuff that they may advance because they they just don't think about it. Beyond that, there's also there's a veneer of really addressing all major religions, if not all religions in general, that I think a lot of the major writers in this field. Uh, do so that it's like it is Judaism, it is Christianity and Islam as well. But then once you actually dig into their work and yeah. and into the, as, as we've been saying, the actual implications of this, Islam is always singled out. I mean, yeah. it is more equal than others in being we're not, bad. We're, we're not bombing seven Christian countries or seven no, Jewish exactly. countries. We're bombing seven Muslim countries. <laughs> right. That's right. And, 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 and the whole thing, like it's this kind of cerebral and rationalist quality that it has that makes it so useful uh, new, new atheist discourse for legitimizing imperialism because there's this kind of neutralist ethos that comes along with it. And uh, I guess by that, I mean that, you know, science, when you invoke it, has more or less a kind of neutral connotation, right? It has a, um, it would claim kind of a predisposition towards like dispassionate mm -hmm. uh, inquiry. And it's a lot easier to package violent ideas um, that way. Uh, with kind of a, a veneer of neutrality. And of course, there's a whole history of people doing exactly that. I mean, what was the scientific racism of the 19th century, which justified uh, some of the worst colonialism undertaken by European powers, the, some of the worst and most overtly racist colonialism of, of um, European powers uh, in the 19th century? Like, what was that about, if not uh, kind of, you know, scientific, using scientific neutralism to justify conquest? I think that's a... a a, a, an eerily good analog for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, there's there's always going to be a buyer's market to kind of provide an ideological scaffolding for for empire, right? Well, and it always has this kind of patina of patriarchy. And um, from, I mean, as you were just saying, the, the kind of 19th century George Fitzhugh style, uh, you know, black people are just children and they must be governed as children. And then you see that kind of same thing manifest now in terms of adherence to Islam. And religion in general, but again, with these writers, and, really, and, and, it, it has to do with Muslims in general. Well, and, and, it's we, like, and we talk about the top of the show how, how Richard Dawkins and Bill Maher are actually quite explicit in singling out Islam. Exactly. It's not, it's not something we're asserting on something they themselves say all the time. <laughs> right. that, and, that Islam is uniquely evil because of some doctrinaire reason and – 
you know, again, it's some broad cultural failing on the part of Muslims. Exactly. That is, that is yeah, there's, the a, there's a chauvinism, like there, some new atheist thinkers display like a chauvinism within their wider reductive kind of attitude towards religion. So uh, you hear arguments like, well, the, you know, the Bible, uh, like the Bible, for example, is often presented as this kind of inherently liberal thing because it was written over time and, you know, it had lots of different um contributors, whereas the Quran is this monolithic thing, which inherently makes Islam authoritarian and and Christendom, uh, you know, secular and pluralistic and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I, re I really don't think we can overstate um, the extent to which there's um, uh, a prejudice against Islam just inflecting the entire new atheist movement. And, and there really always has been. And I think that that issue of the monolith is actually fundamental to the new atheist core uh, when discussing Islam and Muslims. I mean, you know, saying that as opposed to Judaism and Christianity, Islam has like, you know, remained unchanged over the centuries. And basically, you know, this winds up being a pretty convenient understanding of religion that's practiced by over a billion people across like every yeah. culture and country. But like, how do you see that as being just essential to the new atheist argument? Well, I think, I mean, any, any kind of, um, I, th I think really any kind of imperialism, uh, practice throughout history or any and all kinds depend on, I mean, you have to, you have to make, uh, you have to construct an enemy and the enemy has to be monolithic. Um, so that fits perfectly into this, the core narrative of, um, I guess a kind of neoconservative and, and, uh, li you know, liberal geopolitics, which is liberal, rather liberal imperialist geopolitics, which is, uh, there's this, uh, secular pluralistic West. And then on the other hand, there's this, uh, you know, barbaric and backwards and monolithic, uh, East. I mean, the whole the whole discourse that uh, prevails about, uh, you know, quote unquote Muslims uh, in a lot of the West is really absurd um, because it, it treats, you know, this incredibly diverse group of people uh, as if they're monolithic somehow, which is, you know, um, you know, is a feature of, of most kind of uh, discourses of, you know, racial superiority or whatever is um, you, you have to you have to treat um, the other as monolithic. And I think that's what's going on here. I feel like the, you know, as far as like, you know, New Atheist on paper says one thing and then it, it the way it manifests itself propaganda wise and in political discourse is I would say, you know, back in the napkin math, 90 percent about Islam. Mm -hmm. Which again, given the current geopolitical state over the past seventeen years, is exceedingly convenient. It's a the analog I use, of course, is it's like in Jim Crow, they you had a poll tax or you had to take a citizenship test to be able to vote. Now that's a nominally agnostic or or apolitical thing, right? But everyone knows that manifestly the job was to exclude blacks. And I think there's a similar phenomenon with new atheism in that it sort of allows one to kind of be ostensibly neutral mm -hmm. or dispassionate when we all know that like how it manifests itself in popular discourse, right? How it manifests itself in Sam Harris's podcast or in his, or in his screeds or yeah. in Bill Maher's television show is nine times out of 10 really going to be about exactly. bashing the people that we also, the countries that we also happen to be at war with. Um, right. I don't think right. that's you can, a coincidence. You can, you can scream like I'm not Islamophobic, just like you can scream I'm not racist. But if all the policies that you advocate wind up demonstrably and um, disproportionately negatively affecting those populations, then, right, manifestly you are those things.
my first thought was, I'm just going to hold them accountable for these views. I don't have to say I hate Sam Harris, but I need to ask directly, why are you saying this? And what I got when I started doing that, not to, you know, not just to Sam, but to, you know, smaller names and people that are just involved in that community as a whole was immediate pushback and name calling. You know, I said, you know, well, well, why aren't we talking about U.S. foreign policy when we talk about, uh, you know, radical terrorism? You know, we're just pointing the finger at religion, but we're not talking about anything that is uniting, you know, people to take up arms and give their own lives for something. Like, we didn't talk about that. And, well, you're just the regressive left who's excusing Islam. <laughs> oh, God. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Like, yep. And I realized that they weren't interested in having actual discussions that made change. To them, it was religion's the source of all evil, eradicate it, and the world's going to be a beautiful, peaceful place. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, that's not true. If Islam and every other religion disappeared tomorrow, I'm sure there's a percentage of people who might be good people that are driven to do bad things by what they're interpreting and what they're reading. But that's not going to stop happening if, you know, we keep bombing them. They're just going to unite under a different banner or flag of some, of some sort. Exactly. Like, you know, when I look at Islamic terrorism, I look at, uh, people using Islam as a recruitment tool just as the way that the far right uses Christianity here as a recruitment tool, and they go and find things that they can say, look, the book you believe in says X, so you have to, you should do this. But I can also go on this book and find nice things, but they don't focus on those. They go to the evil. And so it all unravels. And as I started kind of picking through this, everything around me started falling apart. And I'm like, wait, what are they doing? What is their goal? How are they going to make the world a better place? And then I think at that same time, these people like, like, like Harris, like when you mentioned, they're getting further and further right. Or, or at least, at least they're being more open about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Where, you know, Harris goes on and says, well, it's a scientific fact that black people are just less intelligent. Now to prove my point, here's Douglas Murray, who is a known racist that thinks the same exact thing. Yep. But, no one thinks that's a scientific fact. Exactly. <laughs> Only racists think that's a scientific fact. The scientific community does not agree with Douglas Murray. And or is, like, is it is it Charles Murray or Douglas? Or Charles Murray. I, There's uh, both of them. Uh, yeah, he has Charles. both of them Douglas on. Douglas is a different Murray. Douglas is yeah. another shitty Murray. They're still, both but, terrible <laughs> right-wingers, yeah. <laughs> For some, some about the last name Murray just does not go well with <laughs> But uh Yeah, uh, Douglas Murray writes for The Spectator or something over in England, and he's just as bad. But, that's right. Uh, yeah, Charles Murray and, and the bell curve. And uh, I'm like, wait. And then, you know, then I'm, you know, peaceful Nazis. And it all just, you start looking at it and you say, shit, I want nothing to do with this. Yep. Like, even like the, the small percentage of things I think New Atheists might be right about, I don't want to be identified with what they're building. Exactly. And a, a broken clock being twice, right, twice, uh, you know, twice a day does not make everything else they're doing defensible. And at that point, I just had to throw my arms up and say, I'm out and I'm going to use this audience I've built within this movement or my voice within this movement with an, uh, with an audience I have now to start calling this out. Mm-hmm. And at, at whatever price that is, we're losing, uh, you know, losing listeners, losing readers. And 
but I, I can't. I'm not going to play along just to keep people listening to what I have to say. Yeah. I, and oh, that sort of just drove the plane right out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I really am kind of so fascinated by this because we have had very, very similar um, developments because I've said on this podcast before, I used to be like in my late teens, you know, very early 20s. I was I was a new atheist. Um, and as my leftism grew and developed, contradictions started to appear between the positions I held as a new atheist and the positions I held as a leftist. And when you say that the first time that you were you were, you know, hit with a criticism of one of the new atheists, you you recoiled into a defensive mode. You're like, hold on now. And, you know, you, you would get shitty with them and you'd argue with them and you'd dismiss them and, you know, you'd, you'd walk away, but it would stick with you. And then the second time and the third time, people that you like and talk to started saying like, hey, this is kind of fucked up that they said that, right? And you're like, oh, man, that is fucked up. And so, like, over time, you build up your anti-imperialism, for example, and and that contradicts with what they're saying U.S. policy should be in the Middle East. And then you have to choose. Well, are you a new atheist on this argument or are you a leftist on this argument? And over time, those start to really bump up against each other. And, and, and over time, you're forced to pick a side. And I view leftism as an advancement on new atheism precisely because new atheism is inherently liberal, but it's also just very idealistic in its, its analysis. So like it will analyze terrorism as merely a, a byproduct of bad ideas, right? It'll say Muslims believe this, this, and this, therefore they do these terrible things. A leftist will say, hold on, hold on, hold on. L- let's look at the material conditions that they're operating in. Let's examine how Western imperialism has created an absolute you know, chaotic war zone. Let's look at how after World War II, the Middle East was divided up arbitrarily by Western powers, you know, with with no care as to the sorts of cultures that were in these areas. And so now you have this new state and there's a bunch of different interests and a bunch of different people that hate each other. And they have to now coexist under the same government because blah, 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 blah. And so in this way, I think um, leftists are like, you're, you're forced out of your new atheism. And, and when you talk about like these simplistic narratives of religion is the root of all evil, which on the last podcast with the Magnificast, we did an episode on Christian socialism and we talked about these issues. And, and I, I kind of made the comparison to, to libertarians who have these simplistic narratives of government is always bad. Taxation is theft. It's so shallow. The, the depth of analysis is just not there. And um, once you find something like anarchism or Marxism, which actually has a really full-throated critique and understanding of history and why things are as they are, you can't help but, but leave those sort of more simplistic narratives behind, you know? Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional 
original hair color, made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off, plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use promo code LEFT. Let's go ahead and move on to to Jordan Peterson. A lot of people know who he is again, but just baseline, who is Jordan Peterson and what are the primary ideas and and concepts that that he pushes and is known for? Okay, so Peterson is really interesting. He's a psychology professor tenured at the University of Toronto, um, and he was catalyzed into the public sphere a couple of years ago in reaction to a proposed bill, C-16. And essentially, he framed himself as the enlightened truth teller who was objecting to, you know, the large overzealous government compelling speech from him and that he would not stand for that. And that, of course, plays into a whole lot of liberal tendencies. But basically, he catalyzed an enormous public profile in response to that. He subsequently put hundreds of hours worth of content on his YouTube channel, established a Patreon profile, which is at present, I checked it this morning, he's the number 10 most lucrative earner on the entirety of Patreon. Wow. Yeah, it's followed closely at number 11 by Sam Harris, incidentally. Mm. But Peterson is really interesting, and I think a lot of people in the mainstream media, as well as even the alternative media, um, have been thrown by a loop in terms of what to make of him because he doesn't easily fit into any existing boxes. He doesn't play the neutrality, like, rational atheist man character in quite the way that people like Pinker or Harris do. He's this quite idiosyncratic set of worldviews that basically mash together uh, kind of Jungian archetypes as well as a really extensive set of historical um, mythologies. And then in conjunction with contemporary psychological developments to put together basically this worldview that is kind of incredibly piecemeal from a variety of different sources. So what he's able to do in having done that is position himself outside of the specialised critique of any particular individual, right? So psychologists themselves can't necessarily critique half of what he's saying because it's not psychology, right? Like all his stuff about Jungian archetypes is not the content of psychologists or other natural scientists, so they don't feel equipped to criticize it. And then all the kind of anthropological literary stuff he's using is so mashed together with other elements that kind of like literary scholars can't quite, don't quite know what to make of him. Mm. But essentially what he's doing is remarkably similar to Harris and Pinker in that he's positioning all critics as completely out of control, big government run amok, SJWs are trying to silence him, etc., etc. And what he's doing is essentially 
reassuring people in positions of relative power and privilege that they are justified and he's reinforcing a whole bunch of existing social hierarchies and of course everyone's familiar with his at least most people would have heard of his 12 rules for life many of which are kind of harmless like just generalized self-help problem but what he's then done is embedded all manner of revanchist socially conservative nonsense kind of wrapped up within it with Jungian archetypes and biblical narratives and I think the, the major problem with what he's doing as opposed to what he's saying is he's effectively depoliticizing young people. So whilst Pinker attempts to depoliticize politics, right, I think Peterson is doing something quite different and that he is encouraging individuals not to be engaged with politics. He's framing all young people who take up political positions and activate and organize in order to change the world around them. He's framing them all as outlandish and stepping outside of their lane. And he quite explicitly and repeatedly tells young people that they don't know anything, that they are ill-equipped to question anything, and that the only righteous move for them at this point in their lives is to clean up their bedrooms, to stand up straight, and doing anything beyond that is just completely inappropriate and they're ill-equipped mm. to engage with the world at large. Yeah, and I th there's there's times where he, he explicitly states that if, if you're not perfect, if you have your own issues in your personal life, then don't you dare even think about criticizing the world because until you have fully sort of addressed every individual flaw that you possess as a, as a singular person, then you have no right to go out and criticize the world. To his fan base, this depoliticizes them, as you say, but it also creates a sort of anger and hatred towards other people who do go out and try to you know organize for better conditions. Do you have anything to say about about how he uses language or anything about how he's sort of opaque in the way he talks? Yeah, so I mean, I'm completely on board with the like the ambiguity and the opaque nature of what he's saying. Um, but I think another element that warrants attention is his kind of cross genre into the self help field. And what I think is particularly worth paying attention to is the fact that. Most self-help kind of quote-unquote gurus and even certainly most cults, Scientology in particular, will particularly at the outset provide people with actually effective strategies, right? And so what ends up happening is that these kind of narrowly tailored particular portions of advice are useful. And so the degree of utility and the efficacy that that advice has in people's lives encourages them to be more attached to the advice giver. And the problem is that once you go beyond cleaning your room, there's very little left, right? And because Pinker has very much encouraged people not to look at the macro world in which they exist. He's, he's simply given them a bunch of vaguely useful advice that is incredibly narrow. Once you get beyond that, he doesn't provide any kind of path, but because his narrowly useful advice has been packaged up with a whole bunch of 
problematic characterizations of people who are lower down the social rung than you. What he does is is he feeds into a degree of hostility between people who are ill-equipped to do well in this world, right? Like, so a lot of the young men who are particularly interested in Peterson have found a great deal of utility in kind of cleaning up their rooms and getting their shit together. And he seems to have brought certain young men back from the brink in terms of the alt-right. And he professes ideological disagreement with the alt-right. But the problem is, once you've cleaned up your room and stood up straight, if you still live in a world where deindustrialization and neoliberalism have made it incredibly difficult for you to get ahead, um, the reduction of unions and the inability to make a living wage mean that quite often um, you'll still be incredibly dissatisfied, right? And if you've been fed a whole bunch of myths and narratives that frame women as, quote, chaotic and outsiders as causing problems and you've simultaneously been told that you are ill-equipped to activate for change in the world, I have some significant concerns about the long-term trajectory of what he's doing. Mm. And I don't think that can necessarily be quantified or demonstrated, certainly not as yet. But I do think it poses really significant questions. And, And one thing in particular that I just want to read aloud from his book, is something that, yeah, to me, really is a significant problem. So, have you cleaned up your life? If the answer is no, here's something to try. Start to stop doing what you know to be wrong. Don't waste time questioning how you know that what you're doing is wrong. Inopportune questioning can confuse without enlightening. Your entire being can tell you something that you can neither explain nor articulate. Every person is too complex to know themselves completely, and we all contain wisdom that we cannot comprehend. And then he goes on and on, just to follow their gut instincts, not to question themselves too much, not to question the world around them too much, and that then cleaned up their room, um, Perhaps you will discover that your now less corrupted soul, much stronger than it might have otherwise been, is now able to bear those remaining, necessary, minimal, inescapable tragedies. The implication being that life is tragic, but those tragedies are necessary. Like, don't question them. Don't question injustice. Don't question the existing hierarchies of the world around you. They are just an inescapable fact of life. So all you really need to do is clean up your bedroom, stand up straight, and anything beyond that, you just need to harden up. New media elevated someone like Jordan Peterson, who had a career uh, as an academic and was published in many different journals and cited many different times. But they recruited him or he recruited himself into this space where he can continue the culture wars from his perspective, which is actually not really focused on anti anti racism as much as it is anti anti patriarchy. 
right? It's just reaction to the patriarchy. And so he's doubling down on the patriarchy, on on toxic masculinity, which these words, while many people are turned off and repulsed by those phrases, they have a brand new meaning when you consider who Jordan Peter is intellectual, uh, intellectualizing for, right? He's He is literally putting an intellectual veneer on top of the incel movement who literally have killed, I mean, in the last month, how many people have they killed? Like 20 to 25 people in the last two months. I mean, the, the ideology of in, in, uh, uh, involuntary celibates has literally driven people to kill. And it is a toxic ideology. It is an ideology of entitlement to women's bodies. So these phrases that people are turned off by, they have such an important meaning now more than ever because there's an entire movement of individuals who are causing death and destruction as a result of their hatred of women and their sense of entitlement to women's bodies. And here you have Jordan Peterson giving this intellectual veneer under the guise of social cultural shifts to enforce monogamy and to promote monogamy as we discussed on Monday, right? Here he is entering into this new media sphere. And what's important about this is that in his, in his academic career, while he may have been successful, he was not the Jordan Peterson that everyone knows today. The reason we know him today is because of his lending of intellectual credibility or uh, giving a intellectual veneer to this toxic ideology and his anti-anti-patriarchy reactionary politics. That's why he is making $80,000 a month on Patreon. That's why he could sell $800 tickets to go hear him speak. Uh, that's why he makes the money, not because of his work in psychology. Let's be clear. Right. He he did not come into onto the scene until he became a a reactionary. And it's through new media. It's through it's through all of these 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 angry white men, quite literally, who are funneling money into these into these voices. But the opposite side of it is a set of conservative billionaires who understand the value of new media, who pour millions upon, I mean, tens of millions of dollars into people like Ben Shapiro and his platform, uh, David Rubin and his platform. Like they are backed by the entirety of Breitbart, backed by billionaires because they know it is far more important to have a daily flow and a daily supply of, of, I mean, the most minister. Commentary on the most minute issues, so long as they can keep a steady level of anger towards all of the forces that would fight against that white male power structure in this country. Anything that is anti-racist, they have people like Ben Shapiro there to give an intellectual veneer to uh, a, 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 a quasi-logical veneer. To uh, his anti-anti-racism, his reactionary racism, right? Uh, uh, anything that's patriarchal, like right? this anti-patriarchy. Now you have Jordan Peterson there to fill in the gap, 
Right. And so you're going to see you're going to continuously see people being placed and elevated in these new media platforms to be the reactionary to anti-racism, to be the reactionary to anti-patriarchy, to be the reactionary to anything that challenges the white male Christian straight power structure in this country that just a few years ago they were proud of. But now they realize, well, we can't win the culture wars by being proud of it. We win the culture wars by making it hard for people to talk about it and calling reverse racism and saying that feminism has become toxic and, you know, and just being reactionary and being the anti anti. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. And the only thing that gives a rudder for his opining about politics, for that matter, is that he knows who his audience is. And it is disaffected conservatives. And young people who just have a sense, young white people, young white males, who have a sense that they don't get what their grandparents had or what maybe their older dad had, which was women as chattel, <laughs> a uh, guaranteed limited pool of competition uh, for anything that they're going for, where large swaths of the population are simply not allowed to participate in the same way, either explicitly or implicitly. And as this changes, people get upset. And here is this. Here is Jordan Peterson, who is he is upset about all of this identity politics. We need to talk to them with more generosity than we do. I'm, you're, you're, I'm confused about how this dovetails with your thesis that the left is too preoccupied with being non-confrontational. Right? Is the left it, is too preoccupied well, just that with we being are, that That's interesting. Okay, yeah, that's, no, all right. No, that's I'm a good question. But the idea that, that liberals, especially <clears throat> intellectuals, are, are preoccupied with politically correct speech, that they're oh, oh, not... Oh, I see. I see. And, and yet... No, they're pre too preoccupied with, with identity politics by a large margin. And they tend to categorize everyone by their ethnicity and their sex and their gender. And I think all that does is turn people into tribal actors and that the end result of that is catastrophe. But weren't you also... You know, this is like the classic thing of like, 
you know, uh, uh, a couple where it's like, you're, you're, you, you shouldn't score keep. You shouldn't score keep in your relations with people. You shouldn't score keep, okay? That's what's really going on here. Score keeping, it's not healthy to developing a relationship. This is, or it's like, it's akin to like, uh, when, um, when people, uh, start saying like, hey, how come the rich are getting massive tax cuts and we're getting screwed in terms of services? Uh, that's class war. You know, when someone says like you're scorekeeping or you're paying too much uh, attention to like identity um, or you're you're starting a class war, that's an indication that that person is winning that battle, that they don't want you to pay attention to what's going on, because the people who are paying attention to things like gender or like race are people who have been systemically and since the founding of this country and prior to that time in certain circumstances have been losing at the hands of the guy who says don't you're you're paying too much attention to that because when people didn't pay attention to that when people did not have the voice to say hey wait a second black people should have the right to vote hey wait a second government shouldn't redline and say we're only going to uh, provide subsidies for housing if you have a covenant where you know black people are allowed, or uh, where women said, like, you know, I shouldn't be property of my husband, or I should be able to get a credit card in my own name, too, or I should have the right to vote, or why is it that in the workplace, you know, we're paid uh, less money? Like, that's when you're starting to bring up all of these differences and that's the problem with things. Of course, I mean, this is so basic as to be a joke. There is one, one political party in this country that is based on identity politics where 95 to 90, maybe not over 90% of its, uh, Supporters are of a single race, and that is the Republican Party. Kind of reminds me of that reductor's headline. Uh, I'm not political, parentheses, because I assume I will retain all of my privileges forever. Exactly. I don't have to agitate. I'm, in fact, we should end politics right now. I mean, if, I, if, if you are a, uh, you know, a billionaire and, uh, you know, you should just basically say like, there should be no more politics. We're fine. Everybody's fine. Like, let's freeze everything now. And that's basically what Jordan Peterson comes out of. All of these people, they come out of this one basic truth that there are people in society who have never had to have their status in any way threatened or questioned. And now they are feeling threatened or questioned. And, and in many instances are losing some measure of power. And of course, their response has got to be stop worrying about those things. Stop, stop scorekeeping. Stop scorekeeping because they don't want you to find out that you're losing. That's why they don't want the score. They just went at the end of the game. Like it's, it's fine. Too much identity politics.
there was a way to like deprogram someone out of one of these fucking cults. Like how, how what would that look like or like how would you begin to like try to bring someone back from the brink of this level of nihilism, hatred of humanity and really hatred of themselves? Like how do you begin doing that? So I think that when it comes to like reaching out to specific people, if someone is already really deep into that, I don't do, I don't try. I don't want to put myself through that. Um, I think it can be worth reaching out to some people who are sort of starting to get into it. It's much easier, I think, to prevent than to cure. So, but I do think that some of what I do with my YouTube channel is try to initiate the process of getting people out, which for me, I mean, like I said, it's it's just so difficult and like, especially if you belong to like a maligned marginalized group, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of traumatic to have to be engaging with people like that directly. But what I try to do and right when I'm making videos is I imagine how I'm going to be viewed by these people. And I imagine these people viewing my videos and try to imagine their thoughts as I'm doing it. And one thing I do try to do is to kind of keep a door open to them. So I think that, you know, even if a lot of people, these people are racist, misogynists, transphobic, whatever, like, and on some level, like, do they deserve to be berated for that? Sure, they deserve it, but like, that's not going to help, is it? And, and so I'm very careful in my videos not to be too sermonizing, too, um, I guess I, I try not to adopt too self, um, superior an attitude because I think that that, triggers that defense reaction but i you know my videos like i make a point of the fact that i regard myself as trash and like i'm just kind of throwing ideas out there and i try to be sort of open and inviting in a sense you know even if i am making sarcastic comments about ben shapiro i don't say like everyone who follows this guy is a transphobic asshole like fuck all of you like i don't do that i don't say that because that's not what you know i don't that doesn't help what i what i say instead is like look okay let's take ben shapiro's terms I'll grant, you know, hello, Ben Shapiro fans. Let's say everything he says. Let's let's say, okay, fine, no feelings. My feelings don't count for all. Let's have an argument about, you know, let's see how the argument goes. If I don't, if I'm not allowed to say what my feelings are, and then like try to show how, even if you don't take my feelings into consideration, actually it makes pretty good sense to call me by my pronouns, by, you know, she, her pronouns, even, you know, and it's not like purely a matter of like, I'm not just appealing to like, how dare you? Like, how dare you offend me? You know, because that, you know, they don't want that. But I, I think that showing them that like, there's a, there's good reasons for the things that I'm suggesting, you know, this would not work by the way, in an actual debate with Ben Shapiro. Um, it's a pure, it's a, it's a literary construction in a sense, right? It's an imaginary debate that you draw up because in person, Ben Shapiro has ways of dealing with this because in person, what he will do in a debate with a trans person, for instance, is he will just, if they're not going along with everything he says, he'll start throwing out jabs in an attempt to get them to react emotively or tri or, or like in a triggered so-called way. And then he can be like, you know, up, oh, just bring your feelings into it again, you know? And so, but, but in a pre-composed video essay, you can escape that. There's no risk of that, you know, because you are the one making up the whole, framing the whole issue. Um, and that, you know, as a piece of media can be consumed by someone and that sort of opens things up to them, I think in a way that other approaches to this might not. Yes. Like watching your videos where you do completely skewer these loathsome <laughs> ideologies and uh, points of view and personalities, 
But in again, in such stark contrast to the people who you're responding to who are unbearably self-regarding, cloying, and yeah, like hectoring in their presentation of, of themselves and what they believe in. Uh, again, I think just a good place to start and what comes across immediately in your videos is a sense of humor and actually a kind of like a good-natured uh, playfulness even with these genuinely loathsome people and ideologies and i think uh it's it's really effective in uh in the work you do thank you yeah that is the goal and and what you said i agree like sometimes i guess the way i say this it sounds like i'm going along with the right-wing notion that oh it's just leftists who are for some reason these like preachy whiny sermonizing uh, supercilious people well no of course not like of course like jordan peterson and ben shapiro are as you said like unbearably you know, self-satisfied and superior and, 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 and hectoring and aggressive. And, you know, you know, what their goal basically is to destroy SJWs, like, or whatever. Whereas in response to that, you know, you, you would be fully justified in being just as belligerent in, in return and just as, you know, preachy and superior in return. But I don't do that. Instead, what I do is, you know, as you say, yeah, adopt a playful, almost like sometimes like submissive or like seductive, I guess, persona, which, mm-hmm. I think is like, in a way, it can be disarming. Um, I don't know that there's always the right approach to take, but but it seems to work in this particular context. And I also just find it very funny. Like it amuses me as I'm working on the video, and I think that kind of comes across to the audience. It makes my videos, it makes people want to want to watch them. You know, even if they don't agree with me, there's like still something there to that's interesting to watch. Well, once again, I think the uh, the the best weapon that the other side completely lacks is any kind of sense of humor whatsoever. They are among the most take humorless people. very seriously. Yeah. They're incredibly self-serious, and that right there yeah. is always the weak, the weak point to attack uh, if you're looking to do this. Yeah, it's, it's odd, because like SJWs, so-called, have this reputation as being like the most like self-serious, unself-conscious whiners or whatever, but like like Jordan Peterson like frames himself often as some kind of like borderline messiah figure. Like he's like saving the world from postmodern neo-Marxism or what like who could possibly be more unself-conscious or un you know like having a person with no sense of humor whatsoever about the silliness of what he's doing. Some people question why why even do an episode dedicated to these people? Why, why dedicate time and energy to people like Pinker, Peterson, and Harris? So why don't we just ignore them and focus on other, some would say, more important things? What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's pretty easy as someone on the left to kind of see the semi-charlatan elements of what they're doing and accordingly dismiss them. But I guess in part because I I had a cringy new atheist phase for a little <laughs> while as well. I can sort of empathize with a lot of people who are seeing something of value in what they're doing. And I think because so much of what they're doing is tainted and can contribute to quite really quite bad politics, um, I think it is worth attempting to disaggregate like what they've contributed in the academic fields, what they're doing in terms of providing something to people in the centre, but then also recognising the fact that, like, they're not non-ideological, they're not 
purely rational and objective in the way that they like to frame themselves, that actually what they're doing is packaging up a very real set of quite reactionary and conservative political ideas, but tying them in a kind of shiny bow um, and presenting them to the mainstream as non-ideological, purely scientific ideas. And given the world that we live in, non-ideological purely scientific ideas are received by technocrats as incredibly worthwhile ones. And Mm -hmm. for that very reason, I I do think it's worth kind of demonstrating the fact that these are not uncontested ideas that they're bringing out and that a lot of what they're doing is actually counter to what they're saying. So there's that component. And then there's also the component that – they speak to a lot of very real needs of either anxious liberals or young men who are alienated by neoliberalism. And I think recognizing that need or that kind of gap and offering something superior is essential if the left wants to win. So it's kind of those two elements that I think warrant interrogation. And that's something I really admire when we, when me, you and I were discussing how we're going to talk about these, these subjects and stuff. You really made a point to talk about there has to be some sort of empathetic approach to the people that these people attract. And sometimes these people, the, the, the fans of these people are complete shitheads, but oftentimes they're confused, desperate people looking for answers in a world that doesn't give them any. And in that sense, there is at least a segment of those populations that the left can reach out to and probably should reach out to to try to bring them over and give them a more coherent worldview so that they don't fall into the traps of reactionaryism or maintaining the status quo. So I do appreciate that empathy on your on your end and we and towards the end of this episode we'll absolutely get into that in more detail. But before we begin, a crucial distinction that you make when it comes to these guys is to point out what they are doing as opposed to what they are merely saying. And I think this is a really insightful and necessary thing to understand. So, can you talk about that distinction and lay out your argument for what they're doing? Yeah, so I mean, as kind of increasing number of reviews and media attention has been paid to the three of them, I've been sort of formulating what I guess you could now vaguely call kind of a thesis of of what's been going on, like the pose that they're striking in public discourse. And I sort of have come to this realization that I think it's best to frame at least my analysis with the idea of speech acts as opposed to just speech, because I think that will allow us to more comprehensively assess what these guys are doing as opposed to just what they're saying. So I think all three, Pinker, Peterson and Harris, have framed their engagement in public from a vantage point of reaction, right? Like all three of them have had their public profiles catalyzed by positioning themselves as victims of, quote-unquote, free speech police, right? Mm. So Peterson jumped to major attention in his reaction to the Canadian Bill C-16. Harris has generated just an inordinate amount of controversy in relation to his, quote-unquote, forbidden knowledge episode of the Waking Up podcast last year where he gave Charles Murray a platform, reigniting a bunch of, very questionable scientific ideas and controversies that 
you know, one would have thought we put to bed in the early 90s when the bell curve was released, and certainly also his reactionary ideas in relation to Islam of no short supply of public attention. And then Pinker as well has spent much of his academic career positioning his scientific work as counterposed to a bunch of PC police who completely deny the idea that genetics can have anything to do with the differences between people. And so when all three frame their public engagement from a point of reaction as though they are being victims of censors, what that does is play into the liberal value of freedom of expression. Mm. And then because all three of them have set up a straw man, they then allow themselves to be framed as the reasonable scientific authority on particular issues. But this framing device is an action, right? Like it helps insulate them from criticism because they've flattened all their critics into straw men and position themselves as enlightened, rational <laughs> truth tellers. Mm. And I guess what I want to suggest is that what follows from there is necessarily in bad faith and is performative as opposed to a good faith attempt to engage. Mm. Um, because what ends up happening is that all critique of their content is framed as hostile SJWs trying to silence them um, or an insistence that their opponents don't understand their work or have taken it out of context. And I think that the reason this is performative is that it has the consequence of eliminating space for actual disagreement, right? Like if all your opponents are just hostile censors, then it allows you to not actually engage with reasonable and good faith criticism of your ideas. Mm. And like actual criticism and disagreement and contestation of values is the stuff of politics. And so when you remove it off the table, as all three do, it renders all engagement free from the substantive texture of politics. And what we get is basically a cult of personality or just an empty kind of performance. And so what that ends up doing is that it allows existing power structures to be preserved. Like when we're not doing politics, we're necessarily by default preserving the status quo. Mm. And so I guess as someone who's incredibly anti-authoritarian just by my very nature, I began to notice something really totalitarian to their approach to public discourse because their framing device renders it impossible to legitimately disagree with them. And this tends to be exacerbated by the social orthodoxy of attributing authoritative status to scientists, especially those tenured at elite universities, even if they're engaged in subject matter that is so far outside their own academic field.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Citations Needed, describing how the new atheist movement turned, almost incidentally, into a support system for U.S. empire. Revolutionary Left Radio discussed the same concept with a reformed new atheist who began to question more deeply. Next up was another interview on Revolutionary Left Radio, this time about how the philosophy of Jordan Peterson seems custom-tailored to prevent people from working to improve society through collective action. The Benjamin Dixon Show took on Jordan Peterson and described the power structures that support his ideology. The Majority Report looked at Jordan Peterson's claim that it's bad to talk about identity in politics. Chapo Trap House spoke with YouTuber ContraPoint, who attempts to prevent people from falling into these kinds of cults. And finally, we just heard another portion of an interview on Revolutionary Left Radio explaining why this discussion is important in the first place. Members will be getting a bonus episode with more examples of the destructive nature of this kind of pseudoscience and a discussion of the concept of the regressive left. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. Though if that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month, and remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. Today, we're going to get back to the voicemails that have come in in response to a question I asked. The question was based on the premise that electing politicians who represent non-dominant identities, meaning people of color and women because those identities are not dominant in American politics, that electing those politicians comes with concrete benefits for society, just like actual policies do, but these benefits come in a different form. So the question was, how much of your policy goals would you be willing to give up in favor of voting for a politician with a non-dominant identity? So if a straight white guy who agrees with you personally on literally every single issue is the baseline, not because I think that straight white guys are the default human being, but because America thinks straight white guys are the default human being, then how much of your policy preferences would you be willing to give up in exchange for the benefits that would come from voting for someone other than that white guy? And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, my name is Whitney from Redmond, Washington. Regarding your hypothetical where there was somebody whose identities were dominant, but they agreed with me on everything, how far could another candidate stray on the policies and get my vote due to various minority statuses? For me, it has to do with harm mitigation. My top concern right now is that people are dying, in danger of dying, being tortured, and otherwise suffering, or will be suffering and dying in the future due to choices we make now. I have opinions about other things, but those are less important to me. I think diverse perspectives inform these areas. So for me, if I have friends with different minority identities than me that say that one of these alternative candidates um, wants one of these alternative candidates due to reasons related to my standards, but there was a blind spot to me, I'm going to alter my perspective on what my positions are and thus whether the candidate is the best to represent my views. But barring that, I'm going to look for a diverse candidate to agree with me and this fictional candidate I support as it pertains to harm reduction that I care about, but may hold different views on other issues. If 
I have the benefit of many such options. I will favor folks who are Latinx, Indigenous, or Black, and have a background in poverty and are either women or queer people over other such candidates. But people are dying. Existential threats like climate change will lead to more people dying. This is where I draw the line. Everything else is negotiable. Unfortunately, this is also negotiable since there is no candidate who is willing to take on all of these relevant necessary issues, which means that practically for me, it will be weighing a variety of groups that candidates care about and trying to do harm reduction with my vote in whatever way I can, which is much easier. Anyway, uh, I've stumbled over my words. Um, those are my thoughts. Bye. Hey, this is Arielle again. In terms of how far a candidate could deviate away from my preferred policies to get minority representation, I'd say maybe 10 to 15 percent is how far I'm willing to deviate. I don't really know how well to quantify that, but I guess in my instance, Bernie versus Warren, their policies are very similar, so I would go for Warren. Bernie versus Harris. Harris's policies are so far away from what I would want that her status as a woman of color isn't enough to make up the difference in the policy differences that I see. And honestly, I'm not as well-versed on the policies of some of the other candidates, so I can't really do a lot of pairwise comparisons for the giant field of straight white men to figure out like where they would all rank. But I'd say 10% deviation from my preferred policies is about all I'm comfortable giving in for the sake of diversity in a given office. But that's just me. And as a white woman, I've had a lot of privilege. So I know that that factors into it. And so if other people are willing to give more on policy differences for that diversity, I can definitely understand where they're coming from. I just am not there myself. Hope that helps. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in, uh, responding to your, if you had your ideal candidate, how would you deviate from that to have a minority or have a someone that's not as well represented uh, in politics. I thought about that for a while. How do you measure that? How do you come up with a... Uh, how, do you, how do you even come up with that, right? So I'm just going to shoot from the hip here. Being a white, male, privileged individual like yourself, say 20%. And um, how you're going to measure that is going to be something else. But... Um, you know, if you think about anything else that you like, uh, food, uh, restaurant experience, um, you know, enjoyment in a movie, something like that, and how much would you be willing to not enjoy it, you know, or, or decrease from your enjoyment? And so 20% is significant. And I'll tell you why I think 20%, because as being the privileged person I am, and I'm going to come up with ideal policies based upon me and my experiences and what my projected thoughts are to be best for this country, right? Well, all right. So if, if I were to understand everybody else in this world, 
maybe 10% would be a better number. But assuming that based upon my own privilege and bias, I don't understand where other people are coming from. So I'm gonna give it that extra, double that, because someone else is gonna have a different opinion and a different point of view that may not match mine, but may be better overall. So that's, that's where I'm throwing the extra, you know, doubling down for, knowing that I don't have all the answers. Anyway, that's my thoughts, that's my two cents or my 20%, so to speak. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I think this is a really interesting conversation. I would love to hear from more people if you have thoughts on answers to this question. And and honestly, I don't think there's a correct answer. I I think that people have, uh, there are going to have a range of answers for a range of reasons, but collectively we may be able to get a sense of how people see the role of race and gender in their politicians and get a sense for how beneficial they think that is to society. So I, I think we're already starting to hear that a little bit. But as I say, if, if you have more thoughts you want to share, I would love to hear them. I, I do have one more message to share, though. This is not quite a response to the same question. I'm, I can't tell exactly, but I believe this was recorded before this initial question was asked. So it's in response to sort of the same general discussion of identity, race, and politicians running for president. So this person is responding to a previous caller, Marguerite, who called in and said that the episode that featured Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris was biased to the point that she was concerned that racism may have played a role. And that she hated that the idea even had to come into her mind. And so I responded to that. And and that sort of was the first thing that kicked off a conversation about the role of race and gender in presidential politics. And I made the point early on that, you know, of course, I prefer for, for a politician to not be yet another straight white guy, but you have to weigh that against policies. And so for me, policies come first, but I never gave a specific percentage as some of the callers were doing. I I didn't present my own ratio, let's say, for for how I make that calculation, how many policies am I willing to sacrifice, how much weight do I put on race or gender diversity in in a politician and, and, you know, bringing that in. So this caller had this response, and I'm playing it because I think it is illustrative of something, and we're going to maybe examine that and and see what we can learn from it. Hey, Jay, this is Grant from Nashville. I've been listening to your show for some time now. I really appreciate your perspective, the way that you approach these issues 
I love the way that you think about politics on the scale that us whites typically think about politics, but I have to say your like third level response to you know, I hate to keep this going, but like, you know, people have been calling you out about the the Harris Warren debate and you fucked up again, man. And I'm sorry to say it, but you fucked up again. You did your one episode, right? And people called you out for being biased and they should have and that was fine. And then like as you defend it on another level after uh Marguerite from LA called you out, you made a mistake again. Your mistake as a white man, I will tell you your mistake on this level was that when you were talking about Obama, you talked about how if all things were equal and there were a person of color and a white person that had the exact same beliefs on all of the issues that are important to you, you would vote for the person of color. But the fact that you are completely obscuring and missing the fact that color matters means that all things are not equal to you, period. Because all things are not equal. All issues are not equal when you're talking about a candidate of color and a candidate that is white. It's not equal. It doesn't matter if Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders think the same thing and then you say to yourself, oh, well, I'll vote for the brown person. That's not what's important. What What's happening is that if the brown person thinks the same thing that the white person does, then it should be a no-brainer because the fact that the person is brown should have extremely influential like part of it like that should be so important to you the fact that you vote for a brown person is in itself a political move it is so important that you pick the brown person if obama wants to bomb whoever the hell it doesn't matter if bernie sanders is going against Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders has all of the views that you think are important and Barack Obama is a violent misogynist piece of shit. The fact that Barack Obama is brown is a political stance. That is a political move on your part. If he is brown, that is a vote on your part to vote for a brown person because the fact that you are voting for a person of color is a substantial move on your part. That is a vote. That is casting your ballot for a person of color because you think that color matters in an election. That 
is an important part of an election. I would vote for a person of color even if they were a completely just purified Democrat rather than voting for a Democratic Socialist because they were of color. Like, that is a thing. The fact that you think that that is the last thing to consider is racist. You are a racist for thinking that color is the last thing that you should consider. And that bothers me because I really like your show. I really, really enjoy your podcast. But the fact that you think that you have to level the playing field before you consider color is fucked. That is fucked. And you should think about the fact that colors should be important to you, even among all of these issues that we're talking about. Like, that should be as much of a voting issue as anything else. As soon as I see a brown person, I will consider their policies secondary because I want to put a brown person in power. That in itself is a significant act. That is putting power in the hands of people that don't have it. And that should be considered significant. So I hope that you can find something in my blabbering that warrants being put on the air. I hope that it is influential to you personally. I am not trying to just get my voice heard. I'm talking to you, Jay. I, I love your show. I hope that this makes a difference. So take take it easy. So that's Grant, and I, I don't have a whole lot I want to uh, lay on on top of that and, and respond with. I, I would mostly like to hear from you guys any any thoughts, responses you have. I, I think that his message is interesting. Uh, I don't agree with it. He hasn't convinced me that I'm a racist for anything I've said in any of these conversations about how much to put weight on the importance of a candidate being a person of color. Um, he puts a lot more weight on it than I do. And I think that's fine. He's clearly coming from a good place. He's clearly well-meaning, but I don't think his perspective is, is widespread. I have been listening to people talk about politics, you know, thousands of hours listening to thousands of people over 15 years. And I don't think I've ever heard this perspective that Grant has expressed from anyone of any race. So as I said, I think he's coming from a good place. I think he's, I don't know, he's, he's gone too far in, in light of the conversation we're having. People are kind of saying like, you know, that like 10 to 20% range that that's how much it matters. That means it matters a lot, but it's clearly not everything. And, And I think that's, that's where most people fall. That's certainly where I fall. He's, he's responding to, you know, my comments previously where I never said what my ratio is, my, what my calculation is. I certainly agree that electing people of color is a political act in and of itself, but I don't think it's everything. And I definitely think that policies matter more than the identity of the person being elected. Something somewhere in Grant's experience, 
led him to believe the opposite that that identity is more important and and so what this reminds me of is sort of a cartoon version of people who care deeply about identity politics that I didn't really think existed. So the the people who poo-poo identity politics, they, generally speaking, are white guys. They care a lot about economics. That's what they know. That's what they care about. That's what they focus on. And, and they are really concerned that too much focus on identity will lead to fracturing and discord and political losses and the progressive movement will fail. And when they point to people who care too much about identity, they they paint this picture of a person who I thought, like, who are you talking about? What person only cares about identity? Of course, we should all believe that it, it's a mixture of all of these things. We should, uh, of course, agree that good, solid, progressive economics is core to any set of policies, but to ignore identity is just as much of a folly as to care too much about it. So who are you even talking about? And it turns out Grant is, is one of these people who I didn't really think existed, who exemplifies that identity above almost anything else perspective. So as I said, I don't agree with it, but I think it's interesting to find that it exists. It's something that could be learned from or like recognized and argued against, but I I don't want to argue against it in the way that I usually hear it argued against the like, stop with your identity politics. We have to just focus on economics and everyone get on the same page. Like that's not the way to go either. So while I, okay. So I, I, I talked longer than I thought I would. I, maybe I had more to say, but mostly I, I would love any responses from anyone else who has thoughts on what Grant said. And, and if it elicited any ideas, uh, it, it could be part of this broader conversation about politicians, elections, identity, and where it all where it all fits and how we all judge it individually. You know, we all create our own little formula, which, which becomes a window into how we weight all of these issues. I mean, that, that's kind of the point of this conversation. I'm, I'm trying to facilitate that. I want to get a sense for how people put priority on identity versus other policies, because collectively as as more people give their thoughts on that we'll get a sense of how people feel broadly about the value of non-dominant identity politicians being elected and and, and that that's really the the core of, of what i was trying to get to it's it's the context is we all agree that's the case and we're just trying to figure out to what degree is that the case And the hope is we'll learn something interesting from the answer to that. So, as always, keep the comments coming in on this topic or anything else. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including 
including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.